Hello and welcome back to Avatar the Podcast. Hello. We are your hosts, Acorn Bandit and Booster Greg. Beautiful. Thank you. I forgot that I should be saying things because there's also people listening for a split second there. I'm losing uh-huh. my mind slowly is what's happening. It's great. That's all right. It's That's fine. all right. We're, we're all in a slow decline of mental stability. <laughs> Just the slowest, gradual. You probably see it week to week or bi-weekly to bi-week, whatever, you know, episode Whatever episode. it ends up being, yeah. Whatever it ends up being. Welcome back to another exciting episode, though. Today, we are going over the aftermath. The aftermath of all of the stuff that we have been seeing, all of the, everything's just heating up. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of, a lot happening in Republic City right now. But as usual, we are going to go through some five-star reviews before we kick it off with today's episode. Yes. And our first review comes from Rio, comma, Sky, comma. I'm being very precise as very precise as mentioned i am losing my mind slowly Uh, and they write goat hey gang i have been listening to this podcast for a few months and finally caught up to enjoy the quora content i appreciate all the effort you put into the podcast it really makes it to another level my top five are zuko in parentheses my first crush Mm -hmm. iroh Sokka, katara and hama we don't (gasps) get a lot of hamas hama oh my gosh I feel like this is the second Hama we've gotten, I think. I think so. Yeah. I appreciate wow. that. Me too. Hama was Elusive a great character. Hama. Yeah. I, I, I feel like a lot, I know I'm a, a, a Zhao apologist. Uh, huh. It's a, something that I don't feel like I should work on because I just like him as a character very much, but I feel like the villains don't get as much love as the heroes in Avatar. And with the exception of very few, Ozai and Sozan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very mm-hmm. well thought out and very three-dimensional. So I feel like whenever we see one, Hama, is she even really a villain? Who's to say? She's a mini villain. Mini villain. She's, she's a, um, what's a good term for her? I think just antagonist. An- antagonist. There you go. Because you antagonists go. Antagonist. aren't necessarily villains. They just go against the protagonist. Yes. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sky, for... Uh, that wonderful review and for putting Hama on there. Thank you. Our next review comes from one of the greatest green names I've ever seen. Mr. Andersmith. I love that. I say it in my brain every time I read this review. Mr. Andersmith. (laughs) (laughs) Who writes a fun and well thought out series. This is such a fun podcast to go through. The hosts present the synopsis of the episodes in a well thought out and interesting way, even adding in what they believe the moral of each episode is. For my own two cents on a moral of one of the episodes, I feel like the one for Imprisoned is to never underestimate how much hope a single person can provide. Ooh, that's a good one. It gives us a glimpse of just how much an influence a single person can have on those around them. That is such a good one, especially in like today's world where there's a lot of stuff going on and sometimes you just need one person to stand up and like provide hope or clarity or even just like direction something for people yeah direction something to rally people behind <laughs> yeah, yes yeah absolutely yeah that uh, when i just think about the episode imprisoned like it just feels like so long ago i know it feels like forever ago i mean to be fair it was probably like at this point over a year ago so what well, i might have been more than that a year and a half probably no. No, because we started the podcast before I had a daughter. Uh-huh. My daughter is <gasps> two and a half right now, almost. True. So this is probably and about th- two to three years ago. And it wasn't imprisoned the f- book one? Yes. 
It's like the beginning of book one, if I'm not mistaken. I want to say episode seven. No one yell at us. Say that's wrong. You try remembering something without looking it up on the internet from three years ago. Yes. Yes. And then I'll yell at you that you're wrong. (laughs) We'll see how that works. At least a year and a half, probably two years, probably a little bit more than two years, um, which is basically like a lifetime ago. Yeah. We were babies back then. Baby podcast hosts. Baby podcast hosts. Oh my gosh. Well, I love that moral of the episode. Thank you so much, Mr. Andersmith. Thank you. Thank you both to Rio Sky and Mr. Andersmith for the five-star reviews. As always, if you want to leave your own five-star review for us to read live on the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave your five-star written review there. Um, You know, the drill, written English language, that's how it works and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But without further ado... Let's jump into today's episode, which is the aftermath, or as we like to call it, bad dad drama. That's right. Mm-hmm. Today's episode was written by Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Kanetsko, directed by Joaquim Dos Santos and Ki Hyun Ryu. We're going to jump back into the story when Cora comes back to the probending arena, which has now been destroyed after that crazy fight with Amon and the Equalist and Lin Beifong. And she finds Mako and Bolin packing their things. She excitedly tells them that they don't have to worry about not having a place to live with the arena closing for repairs because she got Tenzin to agree to let them stay on Air Temple Island. But the brothers inform her that Asami has already invited them to stay at her family's mansion. Asami appears holding Pabu, much to Korra's annoyance, and tells Korra that she's glad she stopped by. She invites the young avatar to visit the estate the next day. Korra is initially hesitant, but caves after Bolin encourages her to come using Pabu like a puppet and like doing the voice like, Korra, come with us. It's going to be fun. And she's like, okay, Pabu. <laughs> I love them. Just Bolin doing Bolin things. I don't hear. Here's a hot take right now. I don't like Bolin as much as I like Sokka. I don't like Pabu as much as Momo, but... Uh-huh. I like the combination of Pabu and Bolin more than the combination of Sokka and Momo. Yes. Agreed. I I can get behind that. It's very interesting. Like they should be the same, but they're not. Yeah. I like their dynamic together. It also feels more natural too, because like Sokka and Momo, it was more like Sokka was kind of forced to become friends with Momo because they were the ones who were like usually left behind when all the benders were going off and doing things. Yeah. Bolin and Pabu, like they're actually a pair. Yes. Like they're actually, he's, Pabu's actually his pet. Like they actually spend time together. They actually like each other, et cetera. And maybe that's the difference is that mm-hmm. we saw when Momo met Sokka. Yeah. So they didn't really like they bonded over time, but that bond wasn't instant and Maybe it's that bond that between Pabu and Bolin that makes it just a little better in our minds. I think so. Uh, I also want to point out before we move on, the intro for this was uh-huh. more than just the last time on Legend of Korra. It was like more in depth. There was an actual speech from a character. I feel like this might have been after a small hiatus in between the seasons. Like, you know, sometimes they'll do that like... They have a big event and then they'll take like a month or two off and then they'll continue. So that was like the recap of all recaps, but I really appreciated it. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. Do you prefer that kind of recap or that kind of intro versus the announcer guy? Yes, but used sparingly. Yeah. Because I think that also made the difference is 
I'm going in expecting to hit the Netflix skip intro button. Uh huh. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, this feels different. Okay, I guess I won't. And I did notice, at least for my Netflix, that button showed up a little bit later. Mm, trying like to catch you from yeah. skipping it completely. Yep. I see you, Netflix. I see. Well, meanwhile, elsewhere in the city, Chief Beifong and her metal benders raid Cabbage Corp's headquarters and find a printing press as well as stacks of Equalist posters in crates of electrified gloves. Chief Beifong comments that their intelligence seems to have been good, and one of her officers agrees that what they found is enough evidence to bury Cabbage Corp for an eternity. They arrest the owner, Lao Ganlan, in front of the Cabbage Corps' headquarters, and Chief Beifong announces to the press they've frozen Ganlan's assets and closed Cabbage Corps. Of course, we have the required, mm-hmm. the wonderful, mm-hmm. no, not my Cabbage Corps. Do you know what makes that line even more wonderful? What makes it more wonderful? The fact that James C., the voice of the Cabbage Merchant, is also the voice of Lao Ganlan. Of course. That's so good. <laughs> I, I immediately, he said that and I immediately had to look it up because I knew it. And granted, my what you're going to notice is my uh, voice acting credits are going to get few and further between because uh-huh. they're reusing the same characters more so. Like it's a shorter season. We don't have as many background side characters, like one episode characters as we did in Avatar. So I yep. think after this, I only have like really one more voice acting note. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so interesting. It feels like Korra for as big as it is, as like impactful as it is, when they were creating it, it was such, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? It's like such a grassroots kind of feeling. It was, Mm. it's this core, you know, two writers, two directors, that's it. We have our, our tight core cast. We have voice actors being reused for different side characters. It doesn't feel like it's as sprawling as Avatar The Last Airbender where we had credits everywhere and like everyone was getting involved and we had all these like guest directors and uh, what's his face from Star Wars that we were losing our minds over. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Dave Filoni. Yeah. Dave Filoni. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it just feels like, I don't know, Korra is is so much more insular. It is, and it's more streamlined. And mm-hmm. I think it's because Bright was only expecting to have one season at this point. Mm-hmm. So they were just like, all right, cool. We get one shot at this. Let's, you know, streamline this. Let's tell a good story. And then we'll be done. And may, hopefully, if it gets well-received enough, we'll get a season two. And then spoilers, they get a season two. And based on what I can gather, no one likes season two, which... yeah. That's the one I didn't like either. Yeah. As we're inching closer to the end of season one, I'm kind of getting that season two dread. I'm being honest with everyone. So Uh we'll see. Well, Cora visits the police headquarters to give her story of the attack and finds Tano sitting in the waiting room. He looks like a different person, miserable and tired with dark circles under his eyes. Tano tells her that even though he's been to the best healers in the city, whatever Amon did to him and his bending seems to be permanent. He tells the young avatar to get Amon for him, to which Korra nods gravely. Just then, Chief Beifong, Tenzin, and Mr. Sato come out and the police chief tells Mr. Sato to let them know if he remembers anything else about what he saw during Amon's attack. The businessman assures them that he will and leaves. Tenzin and Beifong then take Tana to the back for questioning, leaving Korra in the waiting room with her thoughts. This was a moment I feel like was lost at least on me, if it, this is lost on anyone else, please let us know in the YouTube comments or review or, or whatever. 
He says, thanks, Avatar. He's the Avatar. He says, uh, yeah, Avatar. what and was that? I don't know. So I watch it with subtitles on because like, uh-huh. it helps engage my mind a little bit more. Uh, and it also helps with my ADHD if I can focus on two things at once. So I'm like, boom, uh-huh. super focused. And he said, Avatar. And this, the subtitle said that. And I was like, is that a nickname that he said to her at one point? And that was just lost in translation. I don't remember that. I don't either. And I don't know what that was referring to, but I'm guessing it was an inside joke or a yeah. callback to something that he said before, but I don't remember it being I don't remember it. He's only talked to her like twice. Yeah. And he never, I don't remember him saying that. If he did, the enunciation wasn't there and he had the, like smirk and, and I was just like, this is not good writing, pal. Come on. Come on, guys. <laughs> Come on. You're better than this. I know you are. I was thinking it might've been like, like a, like an inside joke for the, the creators, like the group that was creating the episode. It was a callback that they, I don't know, maybe talk about the doc, that not documentary, geez, the director's commentary. They don't. Really? Oh, okay. I well, then the it's commentary. a mystery. The commentary. Yeah. I'm kind of. Uh, here's my little little rant for the episode. Maybe there's more. We'll find out. Whenever I'm super interested in a behind the scenes thing and I want to uh-huh. know what it is, they never talk about it on the commentary. They go into a rant about something completely different, and I'm just like, come on. And they did that a couple times in Avatar: The Last Airbender, but they in Legend of Korra. It's getting progressively worse. I don't know if they just recorded it all within the same two or three days and they got burnt out and they're just being silly. I don't want to talk about like some things. I don't know, but there was they no mention did. of that line. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, once the silly voices came out, I was like, okay, all right. We're in for a world of uh, insanity now. Bit weird. Yeah. Um, it was also weird just seeing Tano too in that, that kind of um, environment. Like I'm glad that we saw the follow-up to how what Amon did impacted him. Yeah. But it was also kind of interesting because we've only, again, see him, seen him like twice in the show. One of which was um, the actual match. So it's not like he's an established character. It's not like he had like any big meaningful scenes with them. It was more just like enter antagonist stage left, exit antagonist stage right. Um, so that was interesting. But I guess it also really shows how him losing his bending was literally his identity being a pro bender. And like, this is what, what happened to him. This is how he's coping with it. Um, I don't know if he's going to show up again, but that could be interesting if he is brought back and shown some sort of involvement. Cause like, he's one of the few people who bridges this gap of this whole conversation in the show benders versus non-benders. He's been on one side and now he's on the other. So how does that impact him? How does it impact his worldview? Like it could, it could be a cool perspective, but I don't know if they're going to go that route. I don't think we are. I didn't look for spoilers, but I would be very surprised if he shows up again in a speaking role. Like if he's in the background, mm-hmm. I'd be a little less surprised. But I mean, at this point, Rami Malek is probably starting to get auditions and stuff. So who knows if he, that's, I know using like the meta of the real world to influence my decision on this, but yeah, kind of true. I do like how it instantly humbled him. I, we thought for sure in the episode, I, w- I thought about this as I was watching it because I was um, editing together the last episode, episode six, and we were like, oh, he's going to just be a jerk anyways. And we were so wrong, but uh-huh. I'm happy to be wrong about that. It Again, as you said, it shows that bending was his identity and he doesn't know who he is without it. Cora takes Asami up on her invitation and visits the Sato mansion where she finds the rest of the fire ferrets and Asami by the pool. 
Cora comments on how much the boys seem to have settled in, and Mako admits that Asami forgot to ask their, her father if they could stay. Asami shrugs it off and says it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Bolin excitedly shows Cora the level of service that comes with being a guest at the mansion, getting the butler to fetch him a towel, towel him off, and then towel Pabu off before they both jump back into the pool. Uh, um, yes, you yeah. go first, please. <laughs> please, you go first. As someone who has worked in the service industry, customer service industry, uh-huh. this this triggered me a little bit, uh-huh. especially with how the butler reacted to Bolin's um, attitude. I'm just going to, you know, PSA, just a friendly neighborhood PSA. Please appreciate your customer service and service workers. They do Please. a lot of hard work for no thanks. They do. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you say their thanks is their money, it's not. It's not a lot no. of money. Spoilers, no. everyone. They don't make a lot of money. <laughs> yep. What are your thoughts? Uh, a, yes, absolutely what you said. B, I do like how dry and sarcastic the butler is. Yeah. Don't forget Pabu. I wouldn't dream of it, sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just all the life has left that butler's body. And yes. it's very funny. I don't know why. It's actually, I know why. It's very reminiscent of Alfred from Batman. Exactly. He's a little I drier, that, but it's that yeah. same deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do have two behind the scenes slash trivia notes on this scene. Awesome. Yes. Um, so the Sato estate is inspired by the Hearst estate that's in California. Ooh. Which is really cool. They mentioned that. Reich mentioned that. And um, oh, what's his name? David Faustino was uh, in this commentary. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so like, it's definitely like a confirmed thing. And this is really cool for anyone who's binging this podcast and has just watched uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, specifically the Serpent's Pass episode. When Bo Lin jumps in the pool, he exclaims earthbending bomb. And yep. Those who have good memory, unlike me, because I needed someone to tell me this, Katara yells water bending bomb in the ser- in the serpent's pass. So like she did. Mm-hmm. I forgot about that. Yeah. So oh, it's that's like a, a nice, nice little, little callback. Wink and a nod, little callback. I really enjoyed it. Oh. Uh, but yeah. So that those are my two wonderful notes here. And I um did I have an Asami note? Remind me if I don't talk about it later. It could be like an end of episode thing, but it's okay. really cool. I had kind of a moment where when they said, oh, yeah, Asami just like forgot to ask her dad if we can come stay. But it's fine. It all worked out. <laughs> and I'm thinking of like all the effort that Cora went into to go to Tenzin and to be like, hey, can the can the guys come stay with us? And them talking about, OK, they can take this room and, you know, let's get get the rooms prepared. Let's get some sheets. Let's, you know, we'll we'll figure out the whole thing. And then she comes to them and says, like, guys, I have a place for you to stay. And they're like, nah, it's cool. Meanwhile, Asami is just like, yeah, come over. We have plenty of room. And didn't ask her dad, didn't plan, didn't do anything because everything is just so easy because they have a butler. Yeah. Like I had a moment where I was like, oh, Cora, I know what you're probably thinking right Mm -hmm. now. And I would think the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, everyone keep in mind too, at this point, everyone watching, I say everyone is a generalized statement, but everyone Uh watching hated Asami. Yes. Yes. This this only kind of further reinforces that because of course... She's rich, and of course, she can do things without permission, which is like the big cool thing. If everyone remembers when you were a kid, maybe you're a kid now. I don't know, but like you could, if you're, if you had that one friend at least I did who can just do things without asking permission. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that envy. That's a really good reminder because it's interesting us watching Cora now, where we are in life, 
because mm-hmm. we know kind of what happens in the story. We've watched some of it. We've heard a lot. So we know who Asami's going to turn out to be. But back when this was airing, yeah, she does really come across as like, you know, the spoiled rich girl who is crashing their party. Yes. Their, their friendship party. And taking mm-hmm. their boys and mm-hmm. having all the cool stuff and curse you, Asami. Cora asks Asami what she has planned for them that afternoon, somewhat sarcastically asking if it's, you know, shopping and makeovers, etc. Meanwhile, Bolin's like, I vote makeovers. But Asami admits that she has something a little more exciting in mind. She takes the group to the mansion's racetrack where the new Satomobiles are tested and offers to take Cora around the track. The two pile into a car and Asami demonstrates that she's an excellent and fearless driver, pulling ahead and winning the race at the, at the very last moment. Cora admits that she thought Asami was kind of prissy, to which Asami agrees that this is the perception many people have of her. But she clarifies that she knows how to handle herself and has even been taking self-defense classes since she was little. And this is where we first start to get a glimpse into she's not just a rich, spoiled girl. I would even argue that's not the glimpse. They say it is in the commentary, but I don't think it really... Because, like, I feel like a lot of rich people just do activities like that. Okay, yeah. You know like, what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying she's not capable. I'm, not, I'm just saying that a lot of rich people also do that. A lot of rich people do. But I guess, narratively, I recognize what they were trying to say yes, with this. Yes. But no, to be fair, that doesn't really change much if you look at the real world alternative, mm-hmm. which is like, yeah, rich people go do all sorts they of activities. Because they have time, because they have money. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I did find myself, I might get some flack for this, but I found myself zoning out during the uh, go-kart race car thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't care about, this is just filler time. I feel like, and granted, we don't get a lot, of, really any filler in this series. So I guess having a scene where they're racing and having fun is acceptable. That's true. Yeah, we really don't get a lot of filler. The story is very intentionally, you know, beat by beat by beat by beat. And I, I would argue we also already know that she's an excellent mo- motorist, vehicleist, because mm-hmm. uh, she motorist. motorist. She handled that uh, the scooter very well, even though she almost crashed into Mako. That's true. That's true. We did see a glimpse of her driving skills. Yeah, but she she did like an excellent like little drift thing afterwards. Uh-huh. So I I already knew this of her, but I didn't know yeah. that she was doing hand to hand combat training. Yeah, and Cora <laughs> didn't know that she was a good driver either. No, oh, that's true. But did Cora really need to know that she's a good driver? Uh, it's not shopping or makeover, so I guess she did need to know. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair, well played, well played. <laughs> The group returns to the mansion and Cora asks if there's a bathroom she can use. Asami directs her to a ladies' powder room upstairs. As she's coming back out, Cora hears a conversation coming from Mr. Sato's office. She sneaks closer and sees through the keyhole that he's on the phone with someone, speaking about Cabbage Corps. He claims that the investigation has brought them enough time and that by the end of the week, they'll be ready to strike. Startled and concerned, Cora leaves the mansion with an excuse that she needs to go see Tenzin and the kids and there's babysitting or whatever. But instead, she goes to see and tell Tenzin and Chief Beifong what she heard. This scene annoyed me to no end. Why did it annoy you? The typical miscommunication trope? Yeah, well, so in my mind, I was like, he's probably, this is probably just a miscommunication trope and it's going to be stupid and mm-hmm. and he's going to get super worried and nervous and anxious and then he's going to try to explain it and then he's not going to be able to and then they're going to think he actually did it when he's not when he's completely innocent and I had this whole scene and then I as the next scene unfolds when they actually talk to him I was like oh no 
now I know what's going to happen at the end of the episode. Because he didn't mm-hmm. do any of that. He was cool, calm, and collected with his, with his explanation. And I really wanted to like Mr. Sato. I know. By the way, before another person yells at me about this and shows up on my streams and tells me this, I already know that Daniel Day Kim is going to be playing Ozai in the live-action Netflix adaptation. We know. Uh-huh. I was actually saving that bit of trivia to say, hey, did you know that this guy is also the voice of Mr. Sato and the guy, what was it, General Gao, I think it was, from After Our Last yeah. Airbender? But no, yeah. it's ruined now. Sorry. No. We get it now. And you, you're not going to get it during, you'll probably get it during Netflix's. Let's, let's be real. As of this recording, we did get our teaser trailer for the Netflix Avatar show. Mm-hmm. Didn't show very much. We mm-hmm. have seen some casting pictures. And the whole elemental intro thing. So mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're slowly getting some more updates. I'm slowly curious to see how that's surely. going to pan out. I saw a rumor that Sammy Liu from Shang-Chi might just might be playing the, how do I want to put this? The deceased and we never got to know who he was, Iroh's son. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I saw um, he was in it. It was like this tweet or it was I saw it as a tweet, but I think it was an Instagram post from him that had him in a makeup chair and it was next to a picture of uh, Luten. <gasps> but it's not confirmed. Like, I haven't seen anything that confirmed it. It could just be a rumor. It could just be him maybe lobbying for something. Uh-huh. But that's just what I heard on the that's... streets of the internet. Interesting. Well, mm-hmm. the streets have some interesting rumors circulating. Also, mm. imagine getting a big pull like Shang Chi, yeah, and having him play a dead person. That is interesting. I don't know. I With mean, his I, current fame that that is interesting. I'm yeah. sure that if he was in there, it would be a much bigger role. Maybe it's more flashbacks or stuff when he's older. But it could be a lot of flashbacks. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I curious. Know. Me too. Hmm. I also, I don't know if anyone else is doing this. Every time I hear news or I see something in the back of my brain, it's just like break left for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. It's like an earworm. I can't, I can't not think that. Yeah. So I'm like, everything they come out with, I'm like, I'm like studying it going, hmm, mm-hmm. where are the clues that tell me why Brike left? Oh, we'll see. We'll see. Everyone cross your fingers. Everyone, everyone say, say a prayer. Please. We'll, we'll see soon enough. I mean, it can't be worse than the last airbender, right? Right. 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 Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of the Star Wars meme now with Padme. <laughs> <laughs> we did. With Padme and Anakin. Right. 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 <laughs> oh, oh someone needs to make that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's get back to the story because Cora is in a very serious moment here. She thinks that she just heard incriminating evidence that Sato, Mr. Sato, is up to something. She goes and tells Tenzin and Chief Beifon what she heard. And um, understandably, they are slow to believe her at first, especially since Kor doesn't have clear proof. It's just something that she overheard. But then Chief Beifong muses that Sato does have the means and he does have the motive. And Tenzin explains to Kor that 12 years ago, the Agni Kai triad robbed Sato's mansion and a firebender killed Sato's wife during the break-in. While tragic... It's possible that Hiroshi Sato could have been harboring anger for this event the whole time. And also, everyone knows that the Cabbage Corps can do no wrong at this point. Yeah. Yeah. That was it's also a setup. That's a, that's a tip of the hand, too, from Brike. 
It could have uh-huh. been any company in the world, any corporation, but they purposely made it the Cabbage Corps. Yeah, because so, my cabbages. My cabbages. And that's what everyone, yeah. like, poor guy, just yeah. can't catch a break. Uh, the trio return to the mansion the next day, and Cora tells Mako and Asami her suspicions. Asami is outraged, and Mako is irritated that Cora spied on Hiroshi in the first place. Asami goes up to her father's office, where he is meeting with Chief Beifong in Tenzin, and insists that he is innocent, noting that just because they're not benders, it doesn't mean they're aligned with the equalists. Mako and Cora join them, and Cora explains what she heard the other day, making Hiroshi laugh. He explains that his number one competitor was knocked out of the game, giving him a chance to move in with a new model of Satomobile. And that was what the conversation was. Tenzin asks him if, he, if they can search future industry factories to put any further questions to rest, and Sato agrees. He was a little too rehearsed with that explanation. Uh-huh. This scene told me everything I needed to know. I was like, oh, I see where we're going with this. The more he started talking, the more I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yep. And kudos to Daniel Kim to, like, pull off that subtlety in his voice of that, like, okay... Mm-hmm. We know he's the bad guy. And could Asami also be the bad guy? Were all of our gut reactions to her showing up and stealing Mako and having entranced the brothers? Could it be real? Could it be true? We'll find out. Could she be just as a bad apple as her dad? Mm, They say about apples Uh and trees. That's true. Mm -hmm. Something about Newton and gravity, right? Something about banana splits. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's what I heard. That's what it was. (laughs) (laughs) The search unfortunately proves to be unsuccessful as no equalist material is found. Everything changes, however, when someone slips a message on a scrap of paper into Cora's hand on the night of the search. The message gives instructions to meet someone under Silk Road Bridge if they want to learn more about Hiroshi's potential ties with the Mon. Cora shares the message with Tenzin and Chief Beifong and they agree to go together. That night, they travel to the bridge and find a man who tells them that he originally joined the Equalists because he thought they would make life better for non-benders. But he's since grown troubled about the war. He informs them that Hiroshi Sato manufactured the gloves that the Equalists wear and that he has a secret factory under his mansion. What's more, he has a new, more powerful weapon in the works, and there are rumors about Sato planning something big involving the Equalists. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. A little too convenient. little too convenient. Just here's a whole dossier on Hiroshi Sato and all of his plans. And oh, he's he just happens to be in his secret warehouse right now. Right. You should go there right now. No reason. <laughs> it's not a trap. What yeah. am I going to do after this? Sleep. Of course. Why would you I'm, ask? Go, I'm very tired. I'm, I'm going to go home tired. and go to bed. Yes. I, I might stop uh, to talk to an unnamed friend. Maybe. Whose name, uh, whose initials uh, just conveni- it conveniently start with H and end with S. But, you know, that's that's besides the point. Coincidence. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what I'm doing. You need to go to the tra- uh, the basement. <laughs> yes. Right now. Yes. Quickly. Hurry. <laughs> while there's time. Make haste. Make haste. They might destroy it before you get there, even though they don't know you're coming. Chief Beifong gathers her metal vendors uh, post-haste. And goes to the Sato estate with Korra and Tenzin. On the way, Tenzin warns her that if they're wrong about these claims, and kind of drifts off, Lin finishes his thought, agreeing that she can kiss her job goodbye. 
They arrive to the mansion and burst in, alarming Mako, Bolin, and Asami who are enjoying their evening. Asami is outraged once more, but tells them her father is in his workshop in the backyard. The group arrives and finds the workshop empty. Lin uses her seismic sense and discovers there's a passage that runs deep into the mountainside. Using metal bending, she rips open a hole in the floor and they discover stairs that lead to a large rail cart. Asami is troubled by this discovery. I believed Asami's, like, reaction. I did too. I did too. It was very sincere. Um, also, can we talk about how cool Lin's shoes are? Oh, yeah! When she does her size. Makes sense. There's like a plate that slides back and reveals her foot, which also raises an interesting point that they don't wear socks in their armor, and that's a lot of metal. And do their feet sweat? Does it get swampy in there? Or do they wear metal socks? There's no absorption with metal socks. That is the that I'm <laughs> just more metal. Just more metal. <laughs> uh, just like woven steel socks. <laughs> Terrible. I'm just saying that sounds kind of sweaty. Yeah. Or do they just continuously just bend their boots to be not boots and then they just like drain it and they go. Ew. <laughs> <with their> day. <laughs> <laughs> it's gross. That's gross. Oh, See, the, these are the thoughts that I have on the podcast with you, Greg, not mm-hmm. when I'm watching the very mm-hmm. cool reveal yeah, of no. ooh. Ooh, slidey plate boots. That's cool. But I would I would argue that if I'm just thinking about the sweat <laughs> exhaust. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> if she's anything like her mother, she doesn't care about any of that stuff, anyways. Oh. She probably just picks corns off her toes, just like her mother mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or is she? She seems more proper and a little more, a little more, more refined, refined and well kept. I guess. A little bit more, yeah. A little bit more. So maybe she's not. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's what she gets from her father, who we'll never know the identity of. Okay. Metal boots, metal socks, all things aside. (laughs) Lynn, Tenzin, the metal benders, and Korra descend into the shaft and discover a massive warehouse draped with Amon posters in giant mechanized suits. The group is perplexed. Tenzin noting that this proves that Hiroshi was lying, but where is he? Just then, the warehouse goes into lockdown, massive metal walls rising along the perimeter. Upstairs, Mako, Bolin, and Asami hear the sound and grow concerned that something is happening. Mako and Bolin share a glance, and Mako pretends to sneeze, blasting fire at Officer Song, who's watching them, to make him fall backward. Bolin bends a pillar of earth to trip him onto the ground, where he tackles him, and the brothers tie up the officer and tell him to stay put. I love that. They have this practice. Mako and Bolin have this practice maneuver. I'm so glad you called it practice. Yes. Because what the way I read this was this was like um, a bit that they did on the streets. Yes. Oh, this for is sure. something they've done before, mm-hmm. probably to survive, probably to steal something when they were kids. And it's just like, a, I mean, okay, you know what it gives me? What's that? It gives me um, get help from Ragnarok yes. with Loki yes. And, yes. and Thor. Yep. Absolutely. It's, it's just, it's, it's a bit, it's, it it's is. one of the, you know, like, which one do you want to do? Rock pillar. Okay. Rock pillar. Yeah. <laughs> fire sneeze. Okay. Let's do fire sneeze. The first time I watched it, I was like, that's really cool. The second time I watched it, I was like, wait, this is rehearsed. And I was paying attention to Bolin in the background and he's kind of like yep. smirking and he's acting and they, they show him acting with very um, simple cartoonish expressions and movements. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. so good. It's like, this is probably one of the shining moments of this episode for me is that I little agree. bit. They even have a glance too. There's a, a, yep. a little uh, couple slides where they share a glance and they have this kind of like 
recognition, like mm-hmm. a nod or something. Yeah. Oh man. I so love, I, I have like, I'm a sucker for street urchin, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. shenanigans. And this is mm-hmm. prime that. Below, Chief Beifong tries to metal bend the walls down so they can escape, but they don't budge. Hiroshi's voice comes over the loudspeaker and informs them that the walls are made from the purest of metal, platinum, and are unbendable. The massive machines come to life around the room and circle the group menacingly. Hiroshi announces that his mecha tanks are also made out of platinum, which he reminds her is a metal that not even her mother would be able to bend. Kora shouts at Hiroshi that she knew he was an equalist and challenges him to come out there and face her. Hiroshi chuckles and asks, why would he face the wrath of her bending? No, he'll remain inside the mecha tank where the odds are a little more equal. He gets so super villainy so quickly. Before they showed his face, I thought Amon was here. Yeah. Well, not I thought this was Amon talking. No. It It had been a little bit since I heard his voice and I was like, wait, is that Amon? Is that... Is this is this all a big trap to like get the Avatar and Tenzin and, and Chief Beifong in one fell swoop? Mm-hmm. No, just just bad dad. Just bad, bad, bad drama. dad. I thought it was very reminiscent almost of uh, of not Zhao. Oh my god, what's his name? The um from Avatar the Last Airbender, the Fire Nation um guy who like was behind everything after Zhao. Who like helped with like kidnapping the mechanist? And I can't remember his name right now, but it oh, had that vibe for me. Yes, yes. What's his face? I can't um, remember. His he name. was he Come was a, a general. Yes, it was a general. Um, I don't remember his name. Chin, War Minister Chin, Chin. War Minister Chin. Yes, War Minister. He reminded me of War Minister Chin in this. Yep, yep. Like, very absolutely. over the top, super villainy. Very like. Uh huh sure of himself I, I very much enjoyed it also you, you know you gotta appreciate the where the odds are a little more equal equal <laughs> <laughs> now have a giant scuba suit with drills on it <laughs> what is this bioshock yeah i know that's what i thought i was like oh big daddy and a daddy's yep. in a big daddy <gasps> bad daddy's in a big daddy bad daddy's in a big daddy look at that Oh, wow. Don't try bending it. It's made out of a, a metal that you can't bend because I said so. I did actually think about that. I mean, it does make sense because if it's the purest metal, if we think back to when Toph is inside um, the metal box, yeah. when our, our two stooges came to kidnap her back home, she noticed the notices the imperfections inside the metal. And that's what allows her to metal bend because she basically is met, metal bending or earth bending remaining earth inside the metal so it makes sense but i'm also like how long did it take you to get that much platinum and to smelt it into giant massive walls and then also giant massive big daddies it's not even like the big daddy's exterior that i'm like not believing it's Uh the gears that go inside like those are also platinum i don't think so I think that's what they're what they're implying, and that's a lot of platinum. That. That's a lot of platinum. That's a lot of time they've been like planning this, which granted they yeah. could have had, but yeah, like, and they have a lot of money, I know, but that's not cost effective. <laughs> like, like for if it was just one, sure, absolutely. Yeah. For as many as they had, uh, there had to have been some regular metal parts in there, and maybe it was a bluff. Ooh. 
to Ma- keep them. Oh, it could have been a Mr. Not X. Doing that. Yes. The walls could have been platinum and mm-hmm. the exterior of the big daddies could have been platinum, but the mm-hmm. inside could not be. And it was a misdirect. Exactly. Although would, would Amon, would Hiroshi allow that? Because down the road, someone could try and it would ruin everything. Yeah, maybe. I just don't, I, I refuse to leave that many. Don't have at least some makeshift parts. There's that much platinum. Yeah. yeah and that much platinum yeah. that they could get to one area is a little far-fetched. Uh, granted, I know we're talking about beings that can generate and bend fire at their will and manipulate water in such a way, but uh, there's just like a line. And I, I was like, I don't know if I can follow you down this line break. <laughs> I don't know. Again, just podcast thoughts. Things that you don't think when you're watching the very exciting fight scene. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of the fight scene, it is pretty cool. Because when that fight breaks out, the mecha tanks are using like extendable claw arms that shoot at the metal benders. And the metal benders are using cables to try to wrap up the mecha tanks. Um, But of course, the mecha tanks are too powerful. And it overtaxes the metal benders cable feeders on the back of their, um, their suits until they start smoking. And then adding insult to injury, it becomes clear that they can also feed electricity down their metal arm claws, mm-hmm. just like the lieutenant's batons. Yeah. And so Chief Beifong is knocked out. Tenzin and Korra try to fight the tanks with bending, but barely make a dent. And finally, Tenzin is taken out by electrified bolas, and Korra is thrown against a wall and knocked out as well. Hiroshi climbs out of the mecha tank and surveys the fallen noting that it was a near-flawless test run. He orders the chi blockers to round up their captives to be brought to Amon. Mako and Bolin arrive and peek into the warehouse to see all of the damning evidence, including the chi blockers rounding the metal benders. The brothers sneak into the warehouse and try to save Tenzin, Korra, and Lin, but are spotted before they can get far. Mako realizes that Hiroshi sponsoring the fire ferrets and supporting the Avatar was merely a ploy to gain their trust. The businessman replies that the hardest thing for him was watching his daughter fall for a firebending street rat like Mako. He ignites his glove and is about to attack them when the voice of Asami stops him. He turns around to see his daughter in tears as she asks him why. Hiroshi tells Asami that he tried to keep her out of his plans for as long as he could, but Benders took away her mother, the love of his life, and for that action must be taken to make the world a better place for non-benders. So... We realize that this has been a plot, a plan the whole time. And not only is Hiroshi dirty, he's also two-faced. Mm. Because this whole time, he's been like, Avatar, welcome to the city. Oh, yes, Mako, come stay at my mansion. Use my butler. Yeah. And he was his true feelings this whole time was harboring resentment for Bender's. I have a new theory. What is your new theory? From last week's poll, which was, if anyone hasn't seen it, it is who do you think rigged the uh, match between the fire ferrets and the wolf bats? Oh. And who has... right now, the poll, I checked it a couple of days ago. I've not checked it today. Right now, everyone thinks the wolf bats were the ones that were bribing the referees so they could uh-huh. win. And granted, that's very good. But maybe, just maybe... It was Hiroshi Sato who was doing it. The guy it. with the money. The guy with the money. So that the way... The guy with the motive. He could get his revenge on Korra, maybe. Just maybe. maybe. Keeping his theory. enemies closer. I don't know. That just popped in my head. And another thing. Platinum isn't even a hard metal. I just looked that up. 
I was wondering. I actually thought, isn't that soft? Isn't that a soft metal? (laughs) It's a soft metal. So that means that any metal, any metal that's harder than that, than platinum can scratch it, which I guarantee the metal that Lynn is using is much. The cables are. Yeah. Yes. Uh, They are, they are one of the highest, if not a high uh, conductivity though. So like. They can oh, for the electricity. electricity that was mm-hmm. something I was like, oh, I don't know, but that was just me being ignorant, and now I'm not about that matter. So I learned you, something today. Don't you just love how we're over analyzing this and over researching this? Hey, that works really well in my Pathfinder campaign for me. So uh-huh. it's, I've been doing really solid. So that's just how my brain works. <laughs> I do some behind the scenes things very quickly. Originally, Asami was supposed to be as despicable as her father. That was the oh. original plan. But they kind of ended up liking her character so much that they were like, the character wrote itself. It's that like writer's yeah. trope kind of like, well, the character just didn't want to be evil. So you know, she wasn't. And that's what happened with Asami, which I think is a Interesting. great move. Yeah. Yeah. And we really see that here because Hiroshi Sato asks Asami to join him and holds out one of his gauntlets. And Asami approaches and hesitates before taking the glove and putting it on. And while I knew what was happening, they did a really good job setting this up, showing like the confliction on her face, showing like her really like struggling with this news and struggling with her decision. Um, But of course, she tells her father she loves him and then shocks him into unconsciousness using the glove. When the lieutenant attacks her, she disarms him and knocks him out with one of his batons. And before the other cheap lockers can act, the group flees the warehouse and leaves on the metal bender airship. Yeah. Here's the thing. I just dawned mm-hmm. on me. It was in the past action scene. Tenzin was traveling on air. Yes. But it wasn't an air scooter. Uh-huh. He just made an adult air scooter. He probably saw his dad, a grown man on an air scooter, was like, that's not. That's kind of silly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A yeah. grown man should be using an air wheel. Yes. So if you've ever seen uh, one of those circus or Cirque du Soleil acts where someone's standing inside a metal circle and they're like rolling inside the circle going upside down and doing like wibble wobbles and stuff it's basically like that he's like standing inside a giant circle of air and using it to propel himself forward we don't get to see tens in action that much and when we do he's incredible i know he's actually i love his fighting style yeah on the airship, Lynn tells Tenzin that Tarlock was right when he said she failed her duty as chief of the police force She plans on handing in her resignation first thing in the morning. When Tenzin tells her not to give up, she replies that she hasn't given up. She's just going to look for her men and face Amon outside the law. On the other side of the ship, Mako and Korra talk about the mess they're in, and Mako apologizes to her for not believing her. Mako asks if her offer to live on Air Temple Island still stands, and Korra says yes, and that Asami is welcome too. The Avatar notes that after everything she's been through, Asami is going to need Mako. So Mako goes over and puts his arm around Asami, who falls into his arms. The two embrace as the airship approaches the Republic City coastline in the distance. The end. I'm going to do this my way outside the law. That made me cringe. Uh, it made me cringe. But at the same time, I was like, okay, Lynn. Yeah. Let's see what you got. It, well, it made me cringe and just the, the writing wasn't great for that. And then the mm-hmm. delivery wasn't also that great. I was just too caught up with the excitement of, oh my gosh, Lin Beifong yes. breaking outside the renegade. constraints of the law. Lin Beifong renegade. I think it would just would have been fine if she had just said, I'm going to do it my way and just looked out a window or something. Like that would have been uh-huh. 
enough. I think so too. A couple just miscellaneous trivia before we go into the next bits. Yeah. Um, This is the second episode in a row where Iki, Milo, and Janora have not appeared. And I miss them. I know. It also makes me appreciate uh, Tenzin as a good father for not putting his kids in harm's way. Yes. Right. very good. Like Zuko, Asami chooses to join the Avatar after denouncing her father's cruelty. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Coincidentally, mm-hmm. the way they both turn against their respective fathers involves lightning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Asami turns against her father using the electrified glove, while Zuko uh, retaliates against his father with lightning redirection, which is really cool. We love symbolism. Mm-hmm. We love parallels. When everyone was reacting to Asami taking down her father using the gloves, there was a Bolin take that they didn't use because it was just too funny and it undercut the scene tremendously. Yeah, I'm glad. They, yeah. They've they done that a couple of times now with the, the episodes we've gone through so far, cutting out uh, different story beats that just either would be too silly or too would undermine the seriousness of the scenes. And so far, I'm really glad with those decisions. I think all of them have needed to be cut out. Yes. And this episode changed the meta of hating Asami. Mm-hmm. Obviously, because now she's wonderful because she didn't know her dad was despicable and she went against him and she helped the Avatar in the end. Yeah. She decided to go with the good guys. Mm-hmm. And unlike Zuko, it didn't take her two seasons. Uh-huh. Hi. Asami here. <laughs> um, there is one more voice acting note. Uh, we didn't really mention him. He's he's pretty inconsequential in this episode. Uh, huh? Captain Saikon was played by Richard Epcar, uh, who is the voice of Ping from episode one of Legend of the Korra. Oh, good. That's it. Good That's stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, tell us, Greg, who is your MVP of the episode? The MVP of this episode for me, it's tough because it's not tough. Everyone's going to think I'm not going to choose Asami and I'm going to choose Asami because she saved the day. She literally is the MVP. Uh-huh. But? Easiest it is it's Asami. Asami's oh, okay. MVP. Okay. I thought you were going to um, give us a, a, a runaround and then no. tell us it's um, Pabu or something. I don't know. I, I almost chose Pabu because of... <laughs> don't think I didn't. Uh-huh. Uh, and don't think that the that crazy maneuver that the brothers did still isn't resonating with me. But ultimately, yeah. if I'm being honest with myself and I really am picking MVP for someone who turned the tide of the story, it's Asami. Mm-hmm. It's got to be Asami. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of her episode. It's mm-hmm. um, all the emotional beats, story beats are for her and her yeah. family. So, yeah. And I think this is going to be the start of her new character arc because before she was someone who was just a rich girl who made new friends. And now she's going to be a rich girl who made who is going out and fighting alongside her friends because she lost her family. She lost yeah. the stability of her father, which yeah. is basically her whole life since her mother has been dead for a while so it it does need to be asami yeah if i were to give a backup maybe tenzin and lynn for believing mm-hmm. cora when like they could have just very easily gone that you're a teenager you don't know what you're talking about trope but they didn't they yeah. believed her and they investigated and they left no stone unturned and that was i did really appreciate cool that yeah i was half expecting them to be like you know cora you don't know what you're talking about but yeah Lynn was very quickly, well, he does have the means. He does have the motive. Yeah. And that's very big of her. Toph would not do that. Oh, yeah. Toph would double down be like, no, you're stupid. Go away. (laughs) Yeah. Twinkle toes. Get out of here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about the moral of the episode? I think we've used this moral before, but I think it it pertains very heavily to this episode. Don't judge a book by its cover. 
Mm-hmm. If you just take Hiroshi at his word, and he's very professional, he's very well established in the community, you would never uncover that he is really pretty high up in the equalist ranks. Mm-hmm. And he's got a lot of harbored anger. If you took Asami just at her face value, then you would think she's just prissy makeup and and boys and gossip and all that. But there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. I also enjoy gossip and being prissy. <laughs> but, you know, there's more to her. She's an expert motorist. She can take care of herself. She's very rigid in her moral compass, yeah. which just was I found very surprising. The fact that she's able to overcome her personal feelings and recognize, no, my dad is wrong in this instance, and he's actually a monster instead of just oh my, seeking his his praise and getting honor and all this stuff. I say this as if Zuko is not one of my favorite characters from the <laughs> from after the last Airbender, but she doesn't have that thing that Zuko struggled with, and I appreciated that. Yeah. What about you? Um, similar, although probably not as not as nice and neat as don't judge a book by its cover, but um you never know what secrets people are keeping. True. There yeah. are some there are some very scary secrets that some people can keep and you would have no idea until they come to yeah. light. So same thing. I feel like don't judge a book by its cover is is a better way of saying it because it's like a nice reminder. Mine is more like <laughs> People are keeping really dark secrets. Don't let them bite you in the butt. Don't just watch out for those secrets. That's the just most paranoid moral I know, of I know. the episode we've had. <laughs> I know. Beware of those skeletons in the closet. They're Beware. there. They're gonna jump out at you. But basically, it's the same concept. Yeah. So we'll we'll go with that. Uh, don't judge a book by its cover for mm-hmm. today's episode. They could be both. <sighs> it's fine. Just one's really paranoid, and one is well put. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> For all you paranoid listeners out there, uh-huh. I have, I have, boy, do I have the uh moral of the episode for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yes. This was a great episode. We hope you enjoyed listening. Um, we're coming back next next time with the results of this revelation. And I cannot wait to find out what's gonna happen next I know and me too. where the story's gonna take us. And what kind of investigation Lynn's going to do and where Asami's going to fit into the group. It's going to be a really good time. Mm-hmm. And if you're caught up on all the episodes and you've listened to every single episode on YouTube, helping us inch ever closer to becoming a YouTube partner, which is one of our yeah. big goals for this year. We're almost, we're over halfway there and it's super exciting. So thank you to everyone who's been watching on the YouTube uh, and again, continued thank you to everyone who's been listening on the podcast through Spotify uh, or Apple Podcasts or however. By the way, Stitcher's going away, everyone. So if you listen to podcasts on Stitcher, you might want to um, just find another platform. Just heads up. I think it's in August is what I heard. So be aware. You can join me over at twitch.tv slash Greg on Monday and Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Don't worry about Wednesdays. Nothing ever exciting ever happens on Wednesdays. Who does things on Wednesdays? Hmm. Weird nerd. And uh, same with me. You can find me on twitch.tv slash acornbandit where I uh, do things like role play. And um, uh, today I think I'm going to be playing a very wonderful game called Donut County, which is about raccoons and donuts and holes, wormholes in the ground. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I currently don't really have a set schedule. I'm trying to do Monday, Wednesday, Friday like afternoon time, Eastern time. Um, but basically just if you want to catch me, go follow and turn on notifications. It's the best way of finding me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
And as always, youtube.com slash avatar the podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead and throw uh, a subscribe over there. I don't even know if that's a YouTube vernacular where I'm a horrible YouTuber, but it's, yeah, subscribe. Whatever. whatever. <laughs> do, do the thing over there um, that you will get the episodes first in video format. And we've been putting yep. in little bells and whistles as we go, which is really cool. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you want to stay listening to the podcast in audio format, that's not going anywhere. So you don't have to yep. worry about that. That's always going to be there for you. But yeah, that's it. And patreon.com slash avatar the podcast. Thanks to all yep. our patrons who've been continuous with their support. Uh, we super appreciate it. And it super helps out. You don't even know. Yes. Don't even it really know. does. It does. That's it. I think that's it. That's everything. That's it's a it. checklist. It's all the things. It's all uh, the things. podcast avatar on Twitter. Yes, that's right. That's not all the things. Now it's all the things. Yes. Now it's all the things. Now it's all the things. <laughs> all right. All right, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We will see you next time on Avatar, avatar the, the podcast. podcast. That one was better. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com. Thank you.